Welcome to the Southside Church Podcast, weekly content that inspires all of us to follow Jesus. Join us each week for a message from one of our fantastic communicators that provide practical ways to grow our faith, challenge ourselves, and to love others more. And now, this week's message. I was sitting in a living room, uh, r- real similar to this, just just about a month ago, uh, with some really close friends of mine. Uh, these are friends of mine that I see a couple of times a year. They're actually pastors in other cities, and for the past probably 12 years, we've been at the same conferences and spent a lot of late nights together and shared life with each other. And in this particular night, uh, they were in town. Uh, for a conference and we were gonna hang out after the thing was over, which we did. The hope was that we would just watch some baseball and have a fun, simple, easy, enjoyable night. But of course, some of the hot topics of the day came up and we started sharing opinions about what we thought and arguments started to form and rebuttals were taking place voices were being raised. We were, we were all sharing our opinions that were uh, way different than I originally thought on opposite ends of the spectrum. It got to the point where at one point I actually cut off a really good friend of mine, called him a name to the point where the next morning I had to send an apology text. Yeah, relationships are hard right now. Relationships are as hard as they have ever been right now. Have you been in a disagreement lately? I've been in a few. There are some rules that we all used to have in relationships that I I thought maybe it would be worth taking a couple of sessions to just remind us of. I mean, rules, that I need a reminder of. Rules like this, I can differ with someone without demonizing them. I can have spirited conversations without drawing blood. I won't interrupt others while they're talking. I I won't use incendiary or belittling words that derail conversation. Yeah, to to get where I think we all want to be, we, we need some mutually agreed upon rules that will allow our relationships to move toward a healthy place. Now, before you even say it, before you even go there, let me just say it myself. Rules are not going to change our relationships. That's not the way relationships work. They don't work because we have rules. No, relationships work when two people are looking out for the other person's interest above all else. That's what great relationships are made of. So let's get into it. Let's get into some relationship rules that might just change every relationship we have. Before we dive uh, deeper into relationships, uh, I, I want to ask a question that is a—it's a philosophical question that maybe maybe we don't even need to ask, but 
it feels like it might be helpful for this conversation. At the end of your life, when you think about fast forwarding to the very end, whatever it may look like at that point, what's going to matter most? I think whether we want to admit it or not, the answer is our relationships with each other are going to matter a lot. It's going to be somewhere up the list, right? And you don't have to believe me or even agree with me, but there is evidence of this. In fact, there have been studies that have done two important ones come to mind. The first one is called the Grant Study, which was out of Harvard University. Scientists began tracking the health of a couple of hundred, 268 Harvard sophomores in 1938 during the Great Depression. And they hoped this longitudinal study would reveal clues to leading healthy and happy lives. In fact, it's one of the longest running studies that sociologists have. Eventually, uh, in some of the decades after this, the control groups expanded. In the 1970s, they added 456 inner city residents of Boston that were enlisted as a part of this study this particular part was known as the Gluck study. So between the grant and the Gluck study, we're talking about over five, six, seven hundred people that they studied over, over decades of time. Forty of them are actually still alive today. And just a decade ago, researchers began including the wives of the, the men that were involved in the grant and the Gluck studies. One of the overwhelming learnings that has come out of this study is this, that close relationships, more than money, more than fame, that this is what keeps people happy throughout their lives. There was another study that was done just a couple of decades ago where a group of researchers interviewed people that were facing death and asked them the simple question, what is most important to you? And the answer was not surprising. The answer was essentially this, that the quality of our lives is only as good as the quality of our relationships. When these men and women were asked, what is most important of you? You heard them talk about their relationship with their daughter, their relationship with their son, the relationship they had with their parents the relationship with close friends. And this study concluded that the quality of our lives is only as good as the quality of our relationships. See, I, I think we all know that relationships are so important in life, but when we get in the heat of the moment, when we're sitting in an environment like this with some friends, with some families, and those discussions start to happen, oh, here he goes again. It's so easy in that moment to sacrifice something eternal, something long-term for something temporary, something short-term. Yeah, relationships are most important. I know we all know that, but in this season, yeah, this is a season where we may need reminding of that more than we even think. challenge is that today we have so many words that we use, so many words that we attach to people, so many different ways of demonizing people. I mean, some of them are words that we throw around a lot, like bossy, 
or lazy or privileged or noisy or nosy or selfish. But then others are words that we just started using more recently, like socialist or racist or Marxist, sexist or nationalist. And what we unfortunately do is that we, we put people in a box. We give them their t-shirt. This is who you are. And then we look for any and every piece of evidence that affirms the t-shirt that we've given them, the box that we've put them in. We're, we're all guilty of this. Every single one of us is guilty of this. We say things like, see, there he goes again, doing that thing. That, that is so like her to do that. You know what? He's just always been that way. And while, yes, we are all guilty of this, we are also capable of so much more. How, how do I know this? Well, because every single one of you loves someone who is not like you. Every single one of us loves someone that we at times have a hard time even enjoying to be around. I, I know you've done this. I mean, you've been generous to someone who isn't like you. You've sacrificed for someone who didn't live like you wanted them to live. You've taken care of a dying parent. You've sacrificed for a child that never said thank you. You've helped out a neighbor in a time of need. You've given money to a coworker who was going through a tough time. See, why can we do it with some, but then we struggle to do it with others? I think, I think it's all about perspective. I think it's all about how you and I choose to see the other person. So assuming that you have a relationship in your life that you would like to have more peace in, let me just ask you, what, what is your plan? What, what, what is your plan to bring peace into the relationship? Do you know how to change how you see him or to change how you treat her or to change how you feel about him? I think it starts when you see him, how God sees him. When you see her, how God sees her, how you see the person will determine how you treat the person. If you want to change the way you feel about a person, you change the way you treat them. If you want to change the way you treat a person, you have to change the way you see them. And it all starts with a deeper understanding of how God has treated you. When I think about how God sees me, or if I were to think about how God sees you, I think about this one particular verse in this letter that we call Romans, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that was scattered throughout Rome. And he was trying to help them see that to, to improve the quality of their relationships, they had to understand how God saw me, how God sees you. Because it's hard to just change the way you treat a person. 
unless you really understand how God sees that person. And it's hard to see another person the way God wants you to see that person until you really begin to understand how God sees you, or in my case, how God sees me. And so this verse, I'd love to just pull out this verse for just a second for us to talk about because it, it, it's staggering what God does for us. And it helps us to understand the reason why he did what he did for us is because of how he sees us. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5 verse 8. He said this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is important to just stop and talk about a few of the words in this powerful statement. First of all, that word demonstrates, he, he, he doesn't say demonstrated. See, he's speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus and then the resurrection of Jesus. But, but he doesn't say, remember what Jesus did on the cross. God demonstrated his love for you then. No, he says, he demonstrates it still. It's active. It's constant. It's still happening. That his death on the cross, his crucifixion, that he would go to the cross, that he would take on the humiliation and the shame, that he would take on the physical pain, the beatings, the crown of thorns, the nails into his hands and into his feet. It was not just this one-time act, but the love that he's putting on display for you. It's perpetual. It continues. It's active. That he demonstrates his love for us in this. And love, the best kind of love, it's not just spoken. It's not just love that's stated. No, it's love that is demonstrated. It's love that's actually shown. I think it's the reason why in our day and age, the little phrase, thoughts and prayers, is such a joke right now, right? Because so many people get tired of hearing that because they think, yeah, okay, thoughts and prayers, cool, fine, whatever, but what are you doing? What are you actually doing? It's fine that you feel that way, but I want to know how are you demonstrating it? I don't just want to know how you're stating it, but how are you demonstrating it? And Paul, he's telling us this is not just how Jesus felt, but this is what Jesus did and it's what he's still doing, that he died for us knowing that we were sinners. Well, what, what does that mean? He demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Well, he knew that we were, we were not going to accept his love at times. He knew that we might actually reject this message of sacrifice that he shows us. He, he knew that some might never say thank you. He knew that Many would still disobey and go on their own way. He knew that we might not treat each other as well as he asks us to. And even still, he demonstrates his love for us in this. Why? Because he loves us. Because we are his sons and we are his daughters. 
And for me as a parent, my wife and I have five little kids. I, I, I got to be honest with you. I, I try my best not to lose my temper with my kids, but the most angry I have ever gotten at our kids is when I see them mistreating one of their brothers or one of their sisters. Now, it's, it's hard for me to stay calm in that moment. Not because of their behavior, not because, oh, I'm so frustrated at what you're doing. No, I am angry because of who that is that you are mistreating. You are being mean to, you are taking advantage of, you are picking on my child. That's who you're messing with. Yeah, but dad, aren't I your child? Yes, you are. But in this moment, I'm frustrated at what you're doing to one of my other kids. And that infuriates me. And me as a fallen, broken, decent at best dad, isn't God the perfect father? Doesn't he feel the same way? Don't you think that his anger burns most when he sees one of his kids mistreated or demonized? Don't you think it infuriates him when he sees one of us mistreat one of his other kids who he sent his son to die for? Yeah, let me just make it real personal for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, that that's how God sees you. God sees you as his chosen child. You are the apple of his eye. You are his beloved. And when someone messes with you, when someone mistreats you, my guess is he's leaning over the rails of heaven coming unglued. Not because he's mad at them, but because he loves you. And he wants you and I to have that same perspective. He wants you and I to allow that same perspective to inform the way we treat each other. And so rule number one for our relationship rules, rule number one is this, that I will treat every person as someone Jesus died for because they are, and he did. That's a rule that might just change life. To really understand how powerful this is, I, I wanna just take a look at this little scene out of Jesus's life because Jesus not only modeled this on the cross, but Jesus modeled this in the way he interacted with the people he was eyeball to eyeball with on planet Earth. Toward the very end of his life, just before his crucifixion, Jesus had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was now on trial. He had already been beaten and flogged a number of different times. And he's standing there in front of Pontius Pilate, this ruler who was keeping in line with this Jewish tradition where they would take two Jewish prisoners and they would ask the crowd, this, this multitude of people that, had, that was now standing there watching this trial that had gathered to see what was going on, he would allow them to choose between two prisoners. He would put these two prisoners in front of them and say, who, who would you want? You choose. And then he would free one of them. He would give one of them their life back. 
And so Pontius Pilate does just that. He puts Jesus of Nazareth in front of the crowd. And then he puts up this man named Barabbas in front of the crowd. Now, we don't know a lot about Barabbas. We, we just know that, honestly, he was, he was a thief. He was someone who had been arrested multiple times. He was someone that they would have known in their day and age as a thug. And he asked the crowd, he says, who do you want? Do you want Jesus, the one who had healed the lame and healed the blind and healed lepers, the one who had brought life to so many different people? Or do you want Barabbas, the one who had taken life from people? And the crowd just begins to chant, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. And so in my mind, when I think about this story, which is even hard to fathom, you just have this moment in mind that maybe even Jesus looked at Barabbas and maybe Barabbas even looked at Jesus and who knows what that exchange looked like. But I just wonder, even in that moment, if Barabbas felt loved by Jesus that Jesus was essentially doing what he would do for every single one of us, that Jesus was taking the place of Barabbas. Jesus was the perfect one. Jesus was the one that had done no wrong. And Barabbas, just like every single one of us, had committed an act that he couldn't undo, that he couldn't take back. And Jesus said, give me all of that. I will take all of your blame. I'll take all of your guilt. I'll take all of your shame. And I'll let you go free. Why did he do this? He did this because he loves Barabbas. How do I know that? Well, because that's who he came for. That's who he gave his life for. But God demonstrates his love in this, that while Barabbas was still a sinner, Christ died for him. Thieves and thugs and self-righteous know-it-alls like every single one of us. And so Pilate released Barabbas and then he had Jesus flogged. And Jesus went along with all of it, even though he didn't have to. But he went along with all of it because he loved Barabbas and because he loved me and because he loves you. So what did Jesus know about Barabbas? We, we, we don't know a lot. But you, you got to remember, Jesus was fully God in flesh. And so Jesus knew everything about Barabbas. He knew that he was abused as a kid, maybe. Maybe that he grew up without a dad. Maybe he wanted to do right, but he just got wrapped up in the wrong crowd. Maybe he knew he was broken like all of us, which is why this rule is so important. That when we come eye to eye with someone, we just don't know their whole story. We don't know everything that's behind it. In the next part, we're going to talk about empathy, about getting on the other side of someone, about understanding more of their story. But for now, to be able to change the way we treat them, 
We've got to change the way we see them, which is why this rule that I will treat every person as someone Jesus died for because they are and he did is just so powerful. And this is what the church should do. And let me just say to those of you that have not been treated this way by people who are part of a church, I am so sorry that this is the way Christians should act. This should be a rule that's a part of every relationship. And it's just not always that way. But it really is the key to seeing that person differently. I, I know this, this first part is just not very practical. It's, it's, it's not filled with a bunch of tangible things that you can go and do. The bottom line is that for you and I to feel differently about someone, for you and I to treat someone differently, it begins by seeing them differently. It begins with us seeing them the way God sees them. It begins with us changing our heart about how we feel about them. This is what God has asked us to do. He says, love as I have loved you. He says, forgive as I have forgiven you. He says, show mercy as I have shown mercy to you. And it's just really difficult to do this, especially in relationships that are difficult, unless we've run into a savior who's done this for us. In fact, it feels impossible for me unless I am in the spirit of, led by God's spirit, seeing that person the way I know he sees them. And let me just tell you, your life will be better if you do this. Not just because you feel better, but your life will be better because you will get to experience what it's like to reflect the image of God, both in you, but also the image of God that you see in the other person. Yeah, this is who Jesus is. Jesus was known as the Prince of Peace. And so if you want more peace in your relationships, if you want peace to rule in your relationships, then you've got to apply this rule. You've got to invite Jesus in to every relationship and abide by this, that I will treat every person as someone Jesus died for because they are, and he did. Thanks for being with us today, and I hope that you'll be back for part two of Relationship Rules, where we're gonna talk about what it looks like to keep the peace, even in the most difficult of relationships, by applying something that every one of us can apply in every single relationship. So I hope that you'll invite somebody back with you. I hope that maybe you'll even share this message with someone, and we can't thank you enough for being with us today. We'll see you back soon. Thank you.